Well, because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. If you don't have a Bible, you could um, grab one of these pew Bibles in the chair in front of you, under you, in the chair in front of you, and you could turn to page 1076. Page 1076, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. I'm going to start in verse 4, and I'll read all the way to verse 10, though we'll spend most of our time in 1 Peter 2, 9, and the two Old Testament quotes that First Peter, that Peter is actually using, one from Exodus 19 and one from Isaiah 43. So we're going to do more work in the Old Testament as we think through and understand 1 Peter 2.9. Hear then the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father in heaven, this truth is the foundation of our morning. We have received mercy from you. And we praise you for your great mercy. For were it not for your grace and for your mercy, uh, we would not have received the cornerstone. We would have rejected him. We would have stumbled over him. We would have tripped over him. We would have disobeyed the word. Father, we praise you for the mercy you have given us to open our eyes to the beauties of Christ. We praise you for saving us from our sins. We praise you now even for giving us your word and your Holy Spirit that we might understand who you are. So Father, now we're asking for your help. For those of us who are Christians here, Even though we have the Holy Spirit living in us, even though we have already believed the gospel, we are still 100% completely unable to bear any fruit this morning unless you come. So help us. We are desperate for you, and we desperately want to not waste our time this morning and our lives. So help us. And we pray, Father, for our friends here who are not yet Christian. We ask God that even like you did for us, that you would open eyes to the beauties of Christ, to the praises of who you are, 
that they might find all joy and satisfaction and hope and salvation and forgiveness and life in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now, Father, sustain my strength and sustain all of our attention and soften our hearts before your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't answer this out loud, but do you know what a dingle hopper is? A dingle hopper. It's a device used to brush your hair and straighten out the parts of your hair that are tangled. It's like a hairbrush, sort of like a comb, but it's just far less effective because it only has four teeth. I guess you'd call it teeth, right? On a comb, you'd call it teeth. So it only has four teeth, but it is used to straighten out the parts of your hair that are tangled. Um, it, it, so it's used to straighten your hair, but it is less effective. It's not as effective as other devices like a hairbrush or a comb. Now, as we think about proclaiming God's praises, it says here in chapter 2, verse 9, that we may proclaim the praises of God, the one who called us out of darkness into light. We don't want to be less effective in glorifying God, right? We don't want to be less effective in praising God with our lives here in 2018. We want to be more effective. Indeed, we want to be most effective, the most effective we can possibly be. It's just hard sometimes to proclaim the goodness of Jesus, right? I mean, we, have, we can look back in our lives and wish that we have proclaimed Christ more than we have, that we, that we have celebrated his goodness more than we do, that we are more happy about sharing God's grace. That, it would, that we sometimes wish that it wasn't so difficult for us to, to share God's grace. Why is it so difficult? If we had the cure for cancer, it wouldn't be hard for us to share that with other people. And yet we have a greater cure than that. And we find it difficult to proclaim God's praises to other people. If you're like me, you might not be, um, but one of my problems is that I have, and many of us, we have settled into a comfortable rhythm of proclaiming Christ in our convenient moments. And we find it scary, oh, I find it scary, um, to find myself complacent and content with how little God is praised in this world, among Christians and among non-Christians. I mean, how, how much God is ignored, how much God is belittled, how much God is sidelined and marginalized and assumed... I find it scary how comfortable I am and how content I am with how little God is praised. Are you scared of being content with all the lack of opportunities people take to praise God, to enjoy God, to exalt God for their own good and for his glory? Peter gives us some help today. He gives us help today to praise God from a joyful heart, to praise God from a heart that is overflowing with joy, and so hopefully um, this will help you as well. So here's the main goal of the sermon this morning. Because God has made all the difference in your life, proclaim his praises. Very simple, right? Because God has made all the difference in your life, proclaim his praises. Now that's, that's Peter's goal in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Right? It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you. And so here it is. We want to proclaim the praises. Peter wants us to proclaim the praises. And here, in this one verse, we have three reasons why we should proclaim God's praises. Okay, 
three reasons in this one verse why we should proclaim God's praises. Now, the key to these three reasons, you might be looking at this and saying, I don't see three reasons here, PJ. And that's okay. The reason why I see three reasons here is because I'm actually going to look at the quotes of this. Do you guys have it bold in your Bible? Is it bold or italicized? Um, What that shows in your Bible from the editors is that this is a quotation from the Old Testament. Okay, So this is actually a quotation from two Old Testament passages. And so for us to find the three reasons why we should be praising God, we're going to have to look at these Old Testament quotes. So we'll be looking at three texts today. 1 Peter 2.9 and two Old Testament quotes. Now the two Old Testament quotes are Isaiah 43, verse 20 and 21, and Exodus 19.6. So if you are... um, if, if you have a Bible, turn to the left. I want you to put these both in your... I want you to bookmark both of these. So um, we're going to be flipping between these three over and over and over again. So at the very beginning of your Bible, you have Genesis, and the second book is Exodus. So turn to Exodus 19.6. Put a piece of paper there. Exodus, or a bookmark, or a ribbon, if you have that. Exodus 19.6. Let me read to you, Exodus. Or, well, Exodus 19.6. Keep a bookmark there, and then the second one is Isaiah 43. So then put another bookmark in Isaiah 43. All right. Once you guys get that set up, I want to read to you 1 Peter 2.9, and then I want to read to you the, next, the, the two Old Testament passages. You guys got that set up in your Bibles? All right. Back to 1 Peter 2.9. Just listen if you're, if you're having trouble... Flipping along, just listen. I want you to see the quotes in the Old Testament because this, this is where we're spending all of our time this morning. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a, now listen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you. Okay? That's the quote. That's First Peter 2.9. Now I want you to hear that in these two other quotes. Go to Isaiah 43, verse 20. Isaiah 43, verses 20 and 21. Listen to it now. Wild animals, jackals, and ostriches will honor me, because I will provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. To give, to give drink to who? My chosen, my chosen people. Okay, my chosen people. That's the first part of First Peter 2, my chosen race. And then look at verse 21. The people I formed... For myself, will what? What will they do? Declare my praise. Do you remember that in 1 Peter 2.9? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one. So you got the chosen people, and you got the declaring God's praise. What else did we have in 1 Peter 2.9? Go to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 6. Beginning in verse 5, it says, Now if you will, Exodus 19.5, Now if you will carefully listen to my... To me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine, and you will be my kingdom of priests or royal priesthood. You will be my royal priesthood and my what? My holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Okay, so everyone look up here just for a second before we set up these three reasons. Do you notice what Peter did here? When he, going back to First Peter 2.9, my chosen race, where's that from? Isaiah or Exodus? The chosen race part, or the chosen people. Isaiah, right? 
my chosen race. And then it says, my royal priesthood, my holy nation. Where's that from? Exodus. And then they will declare my praise. Where's that from? Isaiah. So you got Isaiah on, on both sides of the quote. And what do you have right in the middle of the quote? Exodus. So the question I want to ask this morning is, why does Peter quote the Old Testament like this? Why does he take a quote from Isaiah and right in the middle of it, he puts Exodus 19.6 right into it? That's strange, right? Why, why not just quote the two side by side? Why don't you just start with Exodus, go in biblical order, and then Isaiah. Why quote Exodus 19 right in the middle of Isaiah 43 Verses 20 and 21. I think Peter is tying these two passages together because he sees connections between these two passages. And he sees it fulfilled in the church today. And so, for these reasons, Peter's quoting this, okay? So we're going to look at these. And and as we look at this, we're going to find three reasons why we should be praising God, okay? So here we are. First reason why we should be praising God is because God has redeemed you. Okay, so if you're taking notes... First reason, we have three reasons why to praise God. Reason number one is because God has redeemed you. Now, why am I using the word redeem here? I'll tell you why I'm using the word redeem here. Um, In Exodus 19, verse 6, where he says, you're my royal priesthood, in that passage, this is after Israel was enslaved in Egypt for how many years? Anyone know? 400 years. 400 years, Israel was in slavery, in bondage to Egypt... Okay, And during these 400 years of slavery in Egypt, um, they were brutalized, they were taken advantage of, um, and then God redeems them out of Egypt. That's what the Exodus means. Anytime you see the word redeem in the Old Testament, it is 99.99999% referring to the Exodus redemption. When Christians think of redemption, what's the one symbol that comes to your mind as a Christian? The cross. If you were before the cross, if you said, what's the, one, what's the one symbol that comes to your mind during the redemption? It would be the Exodus, maybe the Passover lamb, maybe the crossing of the Red Sea. But whenever any good Israelite was asked about redemption, redemption was always redemption from slavery in Egypt through God pouring out 10 plagues and using Moses to, to bust his people out of Egypt through the Passover lamb being sacrificed, God taking the firstborn of all the the Egyptians, and then taking them through the Red Sea and closing the Red Sea on the Egyptian army that was chasing him. At the end of that, God finally redeemed, bought his people out of slavery in Egypt. That is redemption. And God had historically redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. And that's why he says in Exodus 19, because I bore you guys on eagle's wings, I took you guys out of Egypt. Now, if you will if you'll keep my covenant, you will be a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Because I redeemed you and I bought you, now you're my people. Now go be the royal priesthood. Okay? So, in Exodus 19, God redeems Israel. Now, um, go to Isaiah 43. I want you to see God has this redemption theme, and it's in Exodus. Clearly, that's the Exodus story. But is the redemption in Isaiah 43? Look at Isaiah 43, verse 19. So we're going to look at the context here. Anytime the Old Testament or New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's always, always, always assuming the context. Amen. Isaiah 43, 19 says this. Look, I'm about to do something. Something what? New. Okay. 
What are, what are you going to do, God? What are you going to do that's new? Verse 19, even now it is coming. Do you see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Can you guys think of any time that God's people were in the wilderness and they got water in the desert? When? During what? After the Exodus, right? On their way out of Egypt, they were in the desert and God gave them water from a rock, right? And now God's saying, hey, I'm going to do something new. In the wilderness, I'm going to make rivers. And you're thinking, oh, that wasn't really new, Isaiah. That was actually, you know, 700 years earlier you did this. But moving on, verse 20, wild animals, jackals, and ostriches will honor me because I will provide, here it is again, water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Okay, do you guys see it here? What is Isaiah saying? He's going to do a new exodus, a new redemption. Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and God redeemed them. And now where are they during Isaiah's time? What are they being prophesied to, to, to do? They're going to be in exile under what nation? You guys remember Daniel in the lion's den, right, and all that stuff? What, what was the great nation? Babylon. Israel was in the land, the promised land, okay? After they came out of Egypt, they were in the promised land. And then David was their greatest king. Solomon may be their greatest king. And then after Solomon, the kingdom split in two. And both northern, northern and southern kingdoms, they both disobeyed God. And they broke God's covenant. Remember, God said, if you keep my covenant, you'll be my royal priesthood, right? But they didn't keep his covenant. They broke his covenant. And so now God kicks them out of the land and puts them in exile. And then God says... I'm going to do something new. I'm going to give them drink in the wilderness. You're saying, oh, this is, this is new, but it's also old. It's old because it's like the Exodus redemption from Egypt, but it's new because it's not coming out of Egypt anymore. It's coming out of where? Out of exile in Babylon. So this is a new Exodus promised, a new redemption that God promised he would do. He would take them not only out of Babylon physically, but even spiritually. And so... When does God finally redeem his people out of Babylon? Go to 1 Peter now. Okay? Go to 1 Peter. Peter is seeing that, wait, if God redeemed Israel out of Egypt and God promised a spiritual and physical redemption out of exile, when did it happen? You know what Peter thinks? Look at 1 Peter 2.5. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built up to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through who? Through Jesus Christ. Now go back to 1 Peter 1.15. You have to know the Old Testament story here, at least today, more, more so than normal. 1 Peter 1.15 says, But as the one called you is holy, you are also to be what? Holy in all your con- conduct, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. That's what God told Israel when he redeemed them out of Egypt. Verse 17, If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, You are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. Now, here's the key word, verse 18. Listen here. For you know that you were what? Redeemed. That's redemption. You know that you were redeemed, but not from slavery in Egypt, from your empty way of life inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. They were redeemed out of Egypt through an unblemished, spotless lamb, weren't they? In Egypt, the Passover lamb. And now what is Peter saying? And now you Christians, you have been redeemed, not from slavery in Egypt, but not, not from exile in Babylon physically, but from a spiritual slavery to sin. 
and from slavery and from exile from God's presence because you're living as strangers and exiles in the world. And yet God has bought you back, not through a Passover lamb, but through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So you have been redeemed. You were just like slaves in Egypt. You were just like those in exile. And God promised those in exile, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to do a new Exodus redemption. And guess who that's through? That's through Jesus Christ. So through Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, we, we, we lost sinners have been bought back from God, back, back for God. We've been bought from slavery to sin and to death and to the former way of our lives. All right, brothers and sisters. And so the first reason why we should praise God is because just like God redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt, Egypt through the Passover lamb, and just like God redeemed his people out of exile from the promised land, despite their sin, God has redeemed you out of your slavery and your exile from God, despite your sin through Jesus Christ. And you know what? God did not have to redeem you. He didn't have to do it. He wanted to do it. He wanted to redeem you. He wanted to redeem us. If you're not a Christian, let me just say a brief word to you. If you're not a Christian, thank you for coming here this morning. We're glad you're here. It can be awkward to gather with a bunch of Christians worshiping a Jewish Messiah who you, whom you may or may not believe in. So thank you for being here this morning. I do want to remind you this morning and, and tell you that God is offering you redemption today as well. Redemption is what Christians will celebrate. This is why we are going to proclaim God's praises. He has redeemed us. But God is offering redemption to you today as well, if you're not a Christian. He's calling you to be free from slavery, to sin, and to death. He's calling you to freedom where you will have God forever. The question is, will you trust in Jesus today? Some people say, you know what? The reason I don't want to be a Christian is because Christianity is slavery, actually, PJ. I mean, think about it. Like, you guys have to believe a book that's old. You have all these stuffy morals and rules that you have to keep. And um, I'd, rather, I'd rather stay not a Christian because I'm free. I'm free to do whatever I want. I, could, I feel that, that objection and I feel that tension. But let me, let, let's just think about it for a second. Uh, first of all, no one is really free. Everyone is only a slave of their highest treasure and their highest value. So if, you're, if Jesus is your highest treasure, well then, you're a slave of righteousness, the Bible says. You're a slave of Christ. He's, he's our Lord. But, but if, if you're saying, well, I don't, want, I don't want to be a slave of Jesus. I want to be free. Well, if you're free, well, the question is, what do you live for? I live for money. Well, then guess what you're a slave to? Money. Well, I live for my family. Well, guess who you're a slave to? Your family. Well, I live for health. I live for eating right and exercising regularly. Great. Guess what you're a slave to? Health. Um, if you're like, you know what? I don't want to be a slave to any of that. I just want to be free from everything. Well, then you're a slave to, to being free from everything. Or another way of saying it is, you're, I don't want to make any commitments to anything. I just want to be free with no commitments. Well, then you're committed to non-commitment. Right? And you're enslaved to that, so you can't actually commit to anyone or anything. Because you're committed to not committing to anything else. The point is, you cannot avoid committing to something. So everyone's a slave. The only difference for a Christian is that Christ dies for our sins and rises from the dead to free us from our sins and give us eternal life. Will your master do that for you? 
I encourage you, if you're not a Christian, God is offering you salvation if you would repent from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. But I tell you, Christians, God has redeemed you to proclaim his praises. So Christian, praise God for your redemption and tell others about this wonderful reality. Church family, we gather as the redeemed, don't we? We are united as a church family. Why? Because God, Christ has redeemed us together. So we praise God together. We encourage one another. And we praise God to one another. And we praise God before a needy world. So brothers and sisters, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you guys are doing well to gather with the church family. This is part of what it means to be God's redeemed people, is to gather together and praise God together. To those who are in trial, maybe health, I'm not feeling 100% today, personally. Some of you might be spiritually discouraged or weak or stumbling or even stubbornly stuck in sin. I want to encourage you. God has redeemed you. God has bought you for himself. God will not let you go. He will hold you fast. Be encouraged by the fact that God has bought you back through Jesus Christ. So because God has made all the difference in your life, proclaim his praises. God has redeemed you. Secondly, not only has God redeemed you, God chose you. Secondly, God chose you. Remember 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race. A chosen race. Even though most of you are not ancestrally descended from Israel, you're not an Israelite ancestrally, um, but yet you are still the chosen race, God's people are indeed a new humanity. Now Peter knows that God extended his, extends his grace past those who are ethnically or ancestrally Jewish and Israelite. Remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter had a vision of a blanket um, coming down from, from the sky and it had all kinds of unclean animals and, and the vision, he heard a voice from heaven saying, go, take up and eat. And so Peter was the first one to really extend the gospel and preach the gospel to non-Jews, to non-Israelites. And so um, Peter knows about God extending his grace. So he wasn't, um, but he was surprised by this. Now, Peter shouldn't have been surprised by this. He shouldn't have been surprised, though we're not going to be too hard on Peter. We all would have been shocked ourselves. But he shouldn't have been surprised if he was reading his Old Testament carefully that God was going to include more than ethnic Israelites as his people. So go back to Isaiah 43 again. Go back to Isaiah 43. Chosen race. What is this chosen race in Isaiah 43? Now this quote about chosen race comes from Isaiah 43 verse 20. And Israel, God's people, were largely conceived along ancestral lines in Isaiah's day. Even though, this should be said, we did talk about racism two Sundays ago. Or is that three Sundays ago now? Three Sundays ago now. We talked about racism three Sundays ago. And... um, we talked about how an ethnic people group is not merely along the lines of genetics and an ancestral line. You know that Exodus, um, this is just an interesting fact, Exodus chapter 12, verse 38 says this. Listen, Exodus 12, 38. This is when they busted out of Egypt. Exodus 12, 38 says, um, A mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. So it says, a mixed crowd also went up with them. In the HCSB, the older translation, it says a multi-ethnic group went up with them. What that meant was when Israel started as a nation out of Egypt, it wasn't just those who were descended from Jacob. There were other 
ethnicities, other nationalities that joined with Israel leaving Egypt and then were constituted as the, the holy nation in Exodus 19. So um, it's not just tied to those who are descended from the 12 tribes of Israel, even in Exodus chapter 12. But, but we move on. So, so go to Isaiah 43. We, we, we read about this chosen race in verse, uh, this chosen people in verse 20. Should we be surprised that it's more than just Israelites? Look at verse 22. Again, we're looking at the context now. Isaiah 43, verse 22. But you, but Jacob, who's Jacob? What's another word for Jacob? Another name for Jacob? Israel, right? His name was changed to Israel. But Jacob, that's Israel, you have not called on me, even though I chose you to be my people and I formed you to declare my praise. You have not called on me because Israel, you have become weary of me. You're my chosen people, Jacob, Israel. You have not brought me the sheep from your burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with incense. You have not, you, Israel, have not bought me aromatic cane, aromatic cane with silver or satisfied me with fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. I, I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. Remind me, let's argue the case together. Recount the facts so that you may be vindicated. Your first father sinned and your mediators have rebelled against me. So I defiled the officers of the sanctuary and set Jacob, that's Israel, apart for destruction and Israel for scorn. Verse 1 of chapter 44. Ignore the chapter division here. And now, is, and now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel whom I've chosen. So who's God talking to? The nation of Israel, Israel, okay? Listen to what God's saying to them. Verse 2. This is the word of the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear, Jacob, my servant, Jerishan, whom I have chosen, another name for Israel. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Again, there's that new exodus. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. It's a new covenant promise there. They will sprout among the grass like poplars by flowing streams. Okay, so God's saying, even though you guys sinned, I'm going to bring you back this new exodus, right? But look at verse 5. This is the kicker in verse 5. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will use the name of Jacob. Still another will write on the hand, the Lord's, and will take on the name of Israel. What is God saying in the new exodus? Is it just going to be Israelites? No. Another. That's what it says in verse 5, right? One will say, I am the Lord's. Another will use the name of Jacob. Still another will write on his hand the Lord's and take the name of Israel. So even here, this is why Peter's using Isaiah 43 and the context. Because in this new exodus, God's chosen people are not just ethnically Israel. There are going to be those who are not ethnically from Israel, not descended from Israel ancestrally. And yet they will be saying, I am the Lord's. They will be part of the people. That's what it says here. They will take on the name Israel. They'll take on the name of Israel, it says. And so here, Peter sees that when God chose Israel, he didn't just choose Israel. He chose all of these different people to be part of his people Israel in the end. So God chose you, brothers and sisters, to be his people if you're redeemed in Christ Jesus. This inclusion of non-Israelites is confirmed because even in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10, Peter says, Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So even though you weren't part of the people of God, now you are chosen to be his people. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at 1 Peter 2 now. I just want to med- just do a little bit more meditation here on, on this idea of being chosen and elect of God. So in Isaiah, I mean, I'm sorry, not in Isaiah, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. What's the first word in, in 1 Peter 2, 9? But, so it's contrasting with verse 8. What is verse 8 telling you? A stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they what? They disobey the word. So there are people who disobey the word. They reject Jesus, who's the, the cornerstone. And then it says a very hard, hard phrase, but it's in the Bible, so we've got we to gotta believe it. What does it say in verse 8? They were what? They were what? Destined for this. They were destined to reject Jesus. They were destined to disobey the word. They were destined to disbelieve. They were destined to reject Jesus. But you are a chosen race. They were destined for that, but you were chosen to be God's people. You are a chosen race. God chose you to be his people in contrast to those who were destined to stumble and disbelieve Jesus. So why did God choose you? Now, I admit that this text is not answering that question, but still got to, I still want to ask you. I think it's fruitful. Why did God choose you? Did he choose you because you were better than other people? Did he choose you because... And you might not want to answer this one out loud. I'm telling you, this is the wrong answer. Um, did he choose you because he looked in the future and he looked down the halls of time and he, he would see, you know what, PJ's going to choose me, so I'm going to choose him. Daryl's going to choose me, so I'm going to choose him. Connie's going to choose me, so I'm going to choose him. And so he like looks into the future and he sees those who choose him. And then in reaction to who God foresees, in that reaction, God chooses who's going to be his people. No, that's, well, the Bible doesn't say it that way. Some people call that foreknowledge or foresight. But if, if, if that's the way that God does it, who's ultimately the one choosing? We are, right? Uh, and God's reacting to us. Now, God does react, but God's still the ultimate initiator. So then why did God choose us? Now, there's a lot of biblical reasons for this, or a lot of different Bible verses I could go to for the reason for this. Let me just go to one. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Turn there. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Why did God choose us? Why did he choose Israel to be his people? Why does he choose a new, uh, in a new exodus, a new people to even join Israel and to be his, his people, his royal priesthood, his chosen nation? Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says this. The Lord had set his heart on you and chose you. Why? Not because you were more numerous than all peoples. For you were the what? You're the fewest of all peoples. So you're not more numerous. You're not more impressive than other peoples. But because what? Now, why then? Why did God choose you? Because what? Because the Lord loved you and kept an oath he swore to his father. So why did God choose? Why does God choose the people he chooses? Because he loves them. And because he chose them. 
That's the final answer. The final answer is not because you're better than others, not because you're more impressive than others, but because God loves you and God chose you to be his people. Even though you're the weakest, even though you're sinners, even though you rebelled against God, he chose you to be part of his people. You're part of God's chosen people, his chosen race, it says. The way God chose Jacob and not Esau. The way he chose King David and not Saul. The way God chose Peter and not Judas. You guys talked about Peter last week, right? And his, his, uh, his failure to, where he denied Christ three times. Last week's sermon. God chose you like he chose Peter, not Judas. He chose you, not others who died this past week apart from Jesus. People are dying every day who are entering hell for their sins. And yet God chose you and not them. Why? Because God is a God of love and he loves you in Christ. He loves you in Christ. So God chose you as his people to proclaim his praises in Christ Jesus. This is your destiny. This is your calling. So what does this mean for us as a church family? For Christians? What does this mean for you as a Christian? I'll just quote 2 Peter 1, 10, 11. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. Or you might know it as make your calling and election sure. Because if you do these things, you'll never stumble. Keep obeying Christ. Keep trusting Christ. Keep praising Christ. Keep living for Christ. That's how you confirm your election. You don't earn your election, but you confirm it. You, you, you are more confident in it because of the way that God's grace that chose you is the same grace that transforms you in trusting Christ. So continue to proclaim God's praises together with the church family. As a church family, we should remind each other of the immense and infinite privilege of being chosen to be the people of God. Now, before we get to our third one, if you're not a Christian, you might be thinking here, okay, wait, PJ, you just said, it just said there in 1 Peter 2 that some were destined to disobey Christ and stumble over the rock. So what about me? What chance do I have if I'm already destined? If God is the one who chooses and some are destined to reject Jesus, then what about me? I mean, basically, there's no point in me even listening or... Thank you. There's no point in me trusting and repenting for my sins because it's already destined. So what about me? Well, here, let me say something to you if that's what you're thinking. That's a great question, first of all. It's a great... I mean, I could see why you would think that. But let me give you some other things to consider. God destined that you would be here this morning. Amen. God chose you to hear about Jesus today. Why? Because he's loving you right now. Amen. He is now calling you to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. God has brought you here this morning to listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? So don't worry about whether you're destined or not. Listen to what he's telling you right now. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. Even though you're a sinner like I'm a sinner, we all deserve hell. And he will save you right now if you will repent from your sins and turn from your righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And so if you... If you do trust in Jesus, you can praise God forever 
You could praise him for choosing you if you trust in him right now. And if you choose not to trust in Jesus, you will have no one to blame but yourself on judgment day for rejecting Jesus today. God loves you. And he wants you to come to him this morning. Okay, so because God has made all the difference in our lives, we proclaim his praises. Because God, because God chose you, proclaim his praises. Because God redeemed you, proclaim his praises. And lastly, God, this is going to be a funnier word, but God designed you. God designed you. In other words, God has given you a specific design. He's given you a specific purpose. You were, <coughs> excuse me, you were made for a specific design and a specific purpose. What purpose? What's the purpose of the royal priesthood? If you look at Exodus 19, verse 6, he says, If you keep my, command, my covenant and my commands today, you will be a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a treasured people among all the peoples of the earth. And you think, well, what's the purpose of it? You know what? Moses doesn't say God doesn't tell Moses, and Moses doesn't tell us in Exodus 19 what the purpose of the royal priesthood is. He does not say. But Peter says, Peter, Peter says, it's so that you would proclaim the praises of God, right? That's why you're a royal priesthood. So, so even though the purpose is not in Exodus 19, Peter says, well, it's to offer spiritual sacrifices in 1 Peter 2.5 and to proclaim God's praises. Why, where does Peter get that idea of proclaiming God's praises? From where? Which Old Testament text? Isaiah 43, right? Remember, he put Isaiah 43 right in the middle, or he put Exodus 19 right in the middle of Isaiah 43 and saying, hey, there's the old Exodus and the royal priesthood. Here's the new Exodus, a new redemption, a new choosing of a new people. And if they are chosen to proclaim God's praises, then that's what the royal priesthood's job was, to proclaim God's praises to the world so that people would, would, would be able to receive the blessing that comes in Christ alone. And so Peter sees in Isaiah 43, 21, the purpose of the royal priesthood, the design of being a royal priesthood, is so that we would proclaim God's praises. That was God's purpose from the beginning, wasn't it? Think about it. Let me just go through the biblical story in a minute or two. Think about the story of the Bible. God created Adam and Eve and he said, be fruitful, multiply, and what? Fill the earth, because he wanted his whole, the whole world to be covered with his image bearers, praising and displaying the glory of God. So then Genesis 11, all the people gathered together. Instead of spreading the Tower of Babel, what do they do? They stay together, and they want to build a name for who? For themselves. They don't want to scatter to glorify God and spread his glory across the earth. They want to gather together. So what does God do? He gives them different what? Languages, and he breaks them up into ethnic people groups. Right there in Genesis 11. And right on the back of that, his mission doesn't change because in Genesis 12, he says through Abraham, he chooses Abraham and he says, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So God still wants all the families all over the earth, all ethnic people groups to be blessed in displaying God's favor and God's goodness and God's glory. And so what does he do? He redeems Israel out of Egypt after that and he sets them aside as the royal priesthood for this task. Now, does Israel succeed? No. no. In some ways, I mean, on the way to, to um, the promised land, they pick up Rahab and a few other people, some other nations along the way, but they don't largely succeed. Largely, they're a failure. There's little, little glimpses of success, but largely they were a failure to spread and to proclaim as the royal priesthood God's glory to the whole world. 
Israel ultimately failed and they were exiled. But then in exile, we just read in Isaiah 43, God promises a new people with new hearts and a new spirit and a new exodus and a new covenant. And then in the midst of that exile, God sends his son Jesus to live the life we should have lived, to die on the cross for our sins, to save us from our sins. And then he takes these followers of his and he says, go therefore and what? Make disciples of all ethnic people groups. That's what nations means. It's not nation states. All ethnic people groups. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I command you. In other words, the story continues. God's mission is still to get the whole globe filled with his glory as people spread his glory. And so even when Christ came, he got his followers for that same mission. It's just part of the long story of the Bible. And then God makes those who are in Christ... His people, he gathers us like this, a very um, dissimilar group from each other, right? We're not all like each other. God gathers us together as a local church into his family, not for our own self-exaltation as our own people group, but to exalt and proclaim God's name so that all ethnic people groups can join this one ethnic people group, this one new humanity, this chosen race. And so here we are. And then at the very end, in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, John says, After this I looked, and there was a vast multitude, which there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand, and they sang with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They celebrate, every ethnic people group at the end celebrates the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. And God designed you before that end to be the royal priests who proclaim his praises, that he, that he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So what are you supposed to be doing, brothers and sisters? Because you're designed to proclaim God's praises, what should you do? Proclaim God's praises, right? That's what we're designed to do. Proclaim the praises of the fact that God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you remember how you got saved? Do you remember who you were before you met Christ? Do you remember how God transformed you? Is God not praiseworthy for that? Amen. Let me read to you from the hymn, hymn 147, verse 3. And can it be? Long my imprisoned spirit lay. This is your testimony before you became a Christian. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye, God, your eye, diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? We praise God for taking us from darkness and transferring us into his marvelous light. You see these flowers right here on both sides. That's not our typical decoration. We we had a a funeral here on Thursday night for one of my dear brothers, Andy Schaefer, who used to sit right over there. He sat here for a few Sundays. He never joined our church. Um, He had brain cancer. But I was telling his story um, here on Thursday night that um, you know, he was addicted to drugs, destroyed his, his, his marriage, destroyed his family, his parenting, and then God met him. He would hear the gospel while he was high at work, and God used it to finally break him 
from the darkness and transfer him into his marvelous light. And so Andy would sing God's praises and we were here on Thursday night singing God's praises for saving him and you should be singing God's praises for saving you and you should be sharing those praises with Christians and non-Christians everywhere whenever you get the chance because God has taken you out of darkness, called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let me close here with an, with an application, with two ideas of application. Okay? Two ideas of application here. The, the, the sermon title is called Proclaiming God's Praises in 2018. And there's, there's one major way I want to do it, but before that, I have to say this other one just because we were talking about racism and ethnicity a few weeks ago. You know, we talk about ethnocentrism where... Um, you put your ethnic people group above other ethnic people groups, and that's the da- that's part of the that's the problem in this world. At least part of the problem is that you put your ethnic people group above other ethnic people groups, and that's what Babel perpetuated, right? First, there was just one people group, all trying to build a name for themselves. Then they got different languages. It didn't take out the selfishness. It just broke up the groups who were selfish. So the group selfishness just was extended to smaller groups. Well, I've been thinking about this because what does this call? What does Peter call us a holy what? A holy nation. So we're a people group. We're, an eth- we're a holy nation. If we're a holy nation, how do we keep from ethnocentrism? How do we keep from being self-centered as an ethnic people group? Well, this is, this is um, what I want to say. We kill ethnocentrism by embracing our deepest ethnicity. What's our deepest ethnicity? We are God's new holy nation. We are an ethnicity as a church. So as the church, this is our deepest ethnicity as God's people. Now, how does that kill ethnocentrism? Can't you become church-centered? Is it possible to become church-centered in a sinful way? Yes. Yes. But if you're church-centered in a non-sinful way, if you really understand your identity as God's people, the people of God, the church of of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what is the mission of the church? To love God and love their neighbors, to make disciples, right? So if we're really trying to become a holy church and really trying to become a strong church, does that, is that good for the community or bad for the community? It's good, right? Because as we continue to love each other and exercise grace in each other's lives and non-Christians come into our gathering or they start interacting with us as we interact with each other, whose glory do they see? God's. And then what happens? They, they turn from their sins, they trust in Christ, and our people continues to... Grow. In other words, the only ethnic people group that can truly be um, self-focused, in a sense, and still not be self-centered, is the Church of the Living God. Because our very mission at the core is not to just be about Bethany Baptist Church, right? At the very core of who we are, we're about proclaiming the praises of Christ and building each other up. And so we kill ethnocentrism, ethnocentrism by participating in our church family life more meaningfully. And more devotedly. Okay, that's the first application. The second application is this. And here's the main, um, here's, my, here's my little, uh, I'm not feeling 100%, and not, even if I was, I probably couldn't do this well. Here's my little cheerleading, rah, rah. Um, here's what we're doing for 2018 as a church family, okay? Bethany Baptist Church is, um, we're, we're transitioning as a church. We're shifting now. Um, our church has become more and more healthy, through the, through the years, and it's, all, it's time for our church to stop merely slowly, slowly um, adjusting things here in the church. It's time for us to be aggressively proclaiming the praises of God to the lost world. Yeah. 
to our neighbors here in Bellflower, to our friends, and even to each other. Okay? We, we cannot use the excuse that our church is not healthy anymore. We must be proclaiming God's praises intentionally and aggressively and lovingly and sacrificially in 2018. So here's my three exhortations of how to do it. Move, invite, and tell. Move, invite, and tell. We need to proclaim God's praises in, to, to each other and to the lost. So how do we do it? Move. Let's move every member of our church towards maturity in Christ. So when you look at the member, the, I hope you have a list of the members of the church. When you have that list, pray for them to grow in maturity. When you, when you hang out with each other, church family, speak God's word to each other. Share prayer requests with each other. Open up burdens. So you guys saw my email where I shared a prayer request last night. I hope to do that more often, not just because I'm sick. I hope to just more regularly email the church prayer requests for my soul. And I encourage you to do the same thing. It doesn't have to be through email to the whole church. It could be to some of the members of the church. It could be through texting. It could be through conversations. But let's, let's share with each other how we can grow so that we start moving every single one of our members to the right. Let's not be content that only some of our members grow this year. Every member in our church should take some steps of moving towards Christian maturity. Simple enough, right? But let's make that one of our things. So move. Let's move every member towards Christian maturity. Secondly, um, what's my second word? Invite. In invite, um, what I want to say here is it's, it's already the second month, but can we still make it as if this is the new year? This is supposed to be last month or last week. Invite 12, mem- 12 unbelieving friends to Jesus-saturated community. Do you think every member could do that here? Can you do that? I'm talking to you, okay? You personally. Look at the members of our church. Can you invite 12 people to Jesus-saturated community? That might mean coming to a Sunday gathering, but that, I say Jesus-saturated community because I don't want to mean it only the Sunday morning gathering. It could be a meal at somebody's house where you guys are going to read the Bible and pray together. But some place where, where, where 12 of your non-Christian friends can see Christians interacting with each other and loving God and loving each other. Invite 12 people here in 2018 to Jesus-saturated community, whether it's a Sunday morning gathering, Sunday night gathering, or some other get-together that we just make up, that you just make up with some of the church members to, to have non-Christians exposed to the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Okay? So um, I encourage you to invite them uh, pray for 12, so invite 12 unbelieving friends, make a list, pray for them, ask other church members to pray for you, and initiate meaningful conversations. And then the last one here is, so move, invite, and tell. I don't know how we're going to do this yet. I don't have a, a strategy here. I'm just going to throw it out there, but this is our burden. We need to tell our Bellflower neighbors within a one-mile radius that we are here in the neighborhood to love them and to serve them. Are you guys okay with that as a church family? Is that true? Are we here to love and serve our neighbors? Are we here to do it together? Sometimes you'll see, I sent an email out this past week, right? There was a neighbor here in Bellflower who needed help moving something on a day. We need to not have every member think, well, that's not my job. I want members to feel burdened. I don't want you to all feel guilty personally, like you have to be the one for every single need in our our community. But as a church family, we we could spread the load so that we could serve our neighbors. We could serve our neighbors better than just being a Christian who's not part of a church, right? Because we've got a whole church family to back up, back us up and to lean on. So as a church family, we need to be thoughtful on 
How are we going to tell 2,000 of our closest neighbors, 2000, the 2,000 nearest homes to this building? How are we going to tell them three times this year that our church is in the neighborhood and that our church loves them and that we're willing to serve them and point them to Jesus? That's not just my job to figure out. That's our job as a church to figure out how do we tell our neighbors that we're here to love and serve them. Okay, so if we're going to proclaim the praises of God, let us move every member to maturity. Let's invite 12 friends to Jesus-saturated community, and let's tell our nearest 2,000 household neighbors, and we'll figure out how to do that as a church. We'll start praying about that on how we can tell them that we're here to love them and serve them. All right, so brothers and sisters, I close by saying, let's proclaim the praises of God. Let's shift ourselves in 2018 because God redeemed us, because God chose us, and because God designed us, let us move, invite, and tell. If we fail, we'll short-circuit the design of our salvation. We'll find ourselves sometimes unsure of our election. And some of the lost won't hear about Christ. And faith comes by hearing. But if we succeed, we'll live out what we are designed to live out, proclaiming God's praise. We'll shift our church in the correct direction. This is the purpose of our lives. And many more neighbors and the nations will hear God's praises because of our intentional effort. I didn't tell you what a dingle hopper was. Some of you know what a dingle hopper is. A dingle hopper is a fork. It's a fork which is supposed to be used for eating, not brushing your hair. It's from the movie The Little Mermaid. I don't recommend you show it to your daughters unless you want to teach them to be rebellious little daughters who think their parents don't know anything. Or you can teach them discernment as you let them enjoy the movie. But, but a dingle hopper is a fork which is supposed to be used for eating, not brushing your hair. In the same way that God's people are meant for proclaiming his praises, not just getting together and getting fat as Christians while the non-Christians don't hear God's praises. We're not designed to just be here and, and pat each other on the back and, and, and just, just point each other to Jesus without actually proclaiming praises to the lost. We are designed to proclaim God's praises to the lost. That's what we were made to do. So, BBC, let us not be content in 2018 to, to not engage neighbors this year. That cannot be acceptable for our church family. As a family and as individual families and as individual Christians, let us remember we are designed to proclaim God's praises because God has made all the difference in our lives. Let's proclaim his praises. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would take these many words and hide them in our hearts that we would not sin against you. We thank you and praise you for redeeming us, for buying us out of slavery. We praise you for choosing us. And we thank you and praise you for designing us to be people who will worship you and praise you and declare your praises to each other and to the neighbors and to the nations so that you would be exalted. And so, Father, we pray that you'd give us your power, your spirit, your joy, and your help for this end. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.